Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks, which is both the foremost movie review site for the erotic thriller Adulterers, <laughs> and also the foremost predictor of who's going to win Best Picture of the Oscars every year. We've Somehow. only gotten it uh, exactly right one time out of the seven rituals that we've done so far where we pick our favorite movies of the year. But um, I think that's just about as good as anybody else who prognosticates for that award show. Uh, I think so, too. I'm completely unprepared to talk about adulterers. Um, <laughs> it's been it's been many years. The thing about adulterers is, for, for some reason, this one review that I wrote about this movie that I only watched because it had Sean Ferris and Makad Brooks in it five years ago somehow continues to be like an evergreen most popular review on the site it gets the most hits and we have no idea why it comes in huge waves too like i don't know what bot self-feeding loop happens every year but like we'll just get thousands and thousands of hit on adulterers um to the point where now when you google the movie like the frequently asked questions section on google which most people read that instead of ever clicking on a website one of them is like, is adulterers based on a true story? And we're cited as the main source of that information. Um, there, <laughs> so there, wow. are, there are things in the film's Wikipedia page that I got from it when I was writing my review. And now that review is considered the source and is cited as the originator of those facts. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. I, thanks. What a legacy to have. You are the foremost expert on adulterers. Yeah, you know, I would have thought I would have thought someone would come to me for my Argento knowledge. That that would be the thing that I would one day be recognized for. But no, it's adulterers. Or, you know, certain sci-fi show. Oh yeah. Oh, Allie, you're not watching Poker Face yet, right? Oh, not yet. But Brandon, I did just watch the Tippet episode. Yeah. And I'm sure that many people were very excited to see Cherry Jones or Nick Nolte. But Kat and I both gasped and looked at each other with delight whenever Tim Russ appeared on screen. We were like, <gasps> Tim Russ! <laughs> I always get excited when I see him in things. Yes, so. he looks great. He has <laughs> aged so well. He looks amazing. Really, he really has. It is incredible that there's a feature length tribute to Mad God that aired on a television show. Like, I, my jaw was agape. Like, are they doing like a, a light nod to Mad God on this episode? Oh, no, they're fully committing. This whole episode is just about how awesome Bill Tippett's magnum opus is. Yeah. When you sent me that text, I couldn't imagine what I was going to see. Because you actually texted me that when I had finally gotten Kat to watch the first episode. Like, we were in the first one when I got that message from you. And now having seen it, I understand. And it's a delight. I mean, the whole show is stunning amazing best show on television right now like undoubtedly hands down i'm not even as big of a murder mystery fanatic as you are which i'm sure will come up later in this conversation for very obvious reasons but i am like on the edge of my seat every time a new episode comes out as well like it really is like my favorite thing that's um popped up on tv in a while well i'm gonna assume that y'all did not engage with the oscars very closely this year so maybe I'll just skip right over the fallout and the celebratory applause uh, from what happened last night before we recorded. I mean, I'd like the highlights because once again, what happened yesterday is I got home doing various things and I fell asleep and I woke up. I slept way too long and I woke up and the Oscars were over. 
And I was like, what? Like, they actually won all those awards? That's amazing. Yeah. The highlight is that Everything Everywhere kind of ran the table and, like, broke records for the amount of awards it won, which is pretty incredible for the kind of movie that it is. Oh, is that why the racists were mad this morning? I never know. <laughs> it's always something. Racists and film Twitter cynics uh, alike, you know, bonded in their hatred for that movie for some reason. Well, there's a big overlap in that Venn yeah. diagram. And then the other highlights were that RRR got a bunch of airtime because there were three highlights of Natu Natu throughout the evening. Uh, one in the opening monologue. There was like a little gag about it. Then there was a full performance of the song, and then they won for best original song, which is incredible. Very happy for that movie, which was also on our best of the year list. And then uh, I guess the third highlight for me was that um, The Whale, which is one of the most despicable films I've seen in a while, and I hate every second of it, also won an award or two. It specifically won uh, for makeup for the fat suit, uh, which was uh. an embarrassment and a reminder of how like backwards the Academy still is in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't know what else was nominated for makeup, but that is just, ugh. Would it surprise you to know that three out of five of the uh, nominees all had prominent fat suits in their makeup? Wait, did they finally give Shallow Hal a very late nomination? They should just rebrand the award as the Shallow Hal Award if it's going to be like this every uh -huh. fucking year. It's very embarrassing. But kind of funny that, you know, A24 is uh, attached to that movie as well. So they had like the best and the worst parts of the evening were under their umbrella. That's enough fucking Oscars talk. I'm sure people are sick, sick of hearing about this because uh, it is like a year-long process. Yeah. We're done with Oscars. We're done with that one holiday. It's over and we'll make Brandon sad until next year. I am going to kind of miss this time of year because around January and February, there's a lot of like award season leftovers that have those like very slow rollouts and they mm -hmm. share the screen with the trashy January dumping season stuff like, you know, Megan and... Women talking will be out at the same time, <laughs> you know, and I find yeah. that part of the annual like film calendar very exciting because it, it speaks to both my high and low tastes. But we've reached the patch now where that's over and there's really not much of interest out there on the market uh, for me anyway. So it's going to be a slow few months. I'm curious what y'all have been watching lately because uh, I'm, I'm finding it a bit of a dry spell out in the world. Well, thanks to... I don't know if y'all uh, remember, um, I think it was for, was it for our uh, salesman episode? I don't remember. Y'all recommended to me uh, Heavenly Creatures. And you're like, that is uh -huh. such an alley movie. And I absolutely loved it. I was like, this is a me movie. They were 100% correct. <laughs> I really loved it. It's wild that I hadn't seen it before then, just because minus the murder, like... Every closeted slash like a curious high school kid has had this experience <laughs> where you're just yeah. like hanging out with your weird friends and making religions, you know. That mutual obsession that children get. Yeah, that yeah. Other people can't crack into that little orbit. Yeah, being the weird kids, you know, that's just kind of a thing you go along with. So watching the movie and then reading about the true case like afterwards and of that stuff super interesting yes, it is based on a true story but like peter jackson really really took his own spin yeah there were a lot of liberties taken i've got a bunch of books actually like on my for later uh shelf digital shelf at the local library where i'm like i don't want to read more about this case where he did yeah. make the mother more sympathetic which is a, an interesting choice 
was an interesting choice, but you still feel like the oppression of the time for weirdos, you know? Yeah. So Heavenly Creatures is uh, Peter Jackson from 1996, and it is based on this true case, true murder case of um, these two young ladies, uh, 15 and 16, who have like this joint obsession with each other, and they have their own little world. They like intensely hang out with each other. When they're separated, they just have like absolute meltdowns. And this is like true life case and then eventually what happens is they murder one of their mothers get caught go to jail um the movie takes this case and it makes a lot of liberties with it you know there's a lot of very fantastical like wild like dream-like moments you know with the movie you can't really tell you know what's real what's a delusion that they're jointly having is it really psychologically really like feeds in on that you know, mindset also peter jackson like made it way gayer which is surprising but also amazing it's kind of weird how it's like its prominence has kind of faded since yeah i want to say at least since the vhs days because i feel like i saw it on vhs for the first time and then since then you know he like directed some of the like biggest money makers in the world uh so like where's the Where's the like regular screenings of this on the big screen, like yes. celebrating Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky? You know, like Ugh, you think this would yeah. be yeah. Who are also some of the biggest talents of yeah. our yeah. era as well. Like it's 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 not just the direction; it's them too. Yeah, I mean, and, and they're and incredible. Their fame, they are amazing in this. Yeah. Uh, there are levels of intensity in these performances where I'm like, I cannot believe that teenagers were able to like oh, yeah. portray these emotions with such rawness and such like viscera you know well, i don't have trouble necessarily leaving that because that's that you feel when you're a teenager <laughs> yeah but it's it's hard to uh, for it to translate to the screen it's not that yeah. teenagers don't feel that way it's just that i rarely feel like i see young performers able to capture that in a way that like once it's on screen has the same sort of like power and potency as it does here yeah they're amazing um might be one of my new favorites, y'all. So thank you for recommending it. Um, we knew. Yeah, you <laughs> knew. I mean, that one and Dead Alive are like his two like unassailable classics to me. Dead like, you can't touch those two movies. Masterpieces. Well, don't tell people that they can't touch it. Maybe that's why nobody's talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Leave it alone. <laughs> Leave it alone. Don't go near it. Don't touch that VHS tape. <laughs> I say take every closeted like, gay 14-year-old and sit them down and watch it with them. Then the popularity will rise again. Yeah, the kids just don't know that it's there. They don't. We got to get our Swamp Flicks TikTok account going so that we can yes. convince the youths yeah, to, watch to give it a movie. shot. I think that would work. Um, besides the fact that we've already talked about how we would all be horrible at TikTok, except for maybe if I had my cats involved. It can't be that hard. You just like do a little half-ass dance and like point it at an invisible graphic. We can pull that off. Yeah. I think the problem is that we're in a, a middle, like, gray zone age-wise. Like, if we're, like, <laughs> 20 years older or 15, 20 years younger, we'd be in the right range. Uh, we're in podcast range. We're not, yeah. not in TikTok range. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, reading about the case afterwards, uh, I like what Peter Jackson did with it. I mean, maybe as, like, tasteful as it is to, like, take a real-life murder case and then sort of romanticize it. 
like that he did it anyway. Then finding out that afterwards, you know, one of the murderers like was a mystery like crime fiction a author, mystery novelist, and nobody yeah. knew until after the movie came out that that was her. Truly bizarre. So good. So that's what I watched and um, enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, Boomer, what have you been watching? Well, actually, this wasn't what I was going to lead with, but it is one of the best things that I saw uh, since we spoke last. And while we're on the subject of goofy TikTok dances, I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Fun movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I wish I had seen it last year. It definitely would have ended up on my list. And I was looking and I saw that, although you did a write-up where you compared it to one of the other movies that came out last year, there's no like copy review of it explicitly or specifically. So I don't want to say too much about it because I feel like I might want to end up writing about it, but I really enjoyed it. It felt very real because they are having a hurricane party. And although they don't say anything about where they are, it felt like it could have been like a Louisiana movie because, you know, there's all those rich pricks like them, you know, it who felt have very these big Florida houses. to me. Oh, you know what? I can't, I don't know that I can argue with that. You're right. It is, it is very Florida in many ways. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed its twist. It was a whodunit. I really enjoyed all of the, like, the way that it mocks people who profess leftist values, but really are only concerned about themselves and are completely self-absorbed. That was something that everybody was talking about, about White Lotus and um, I actually preferred the second season because I felt like the sort of politics of the first season were kind of like, yeah, it's like a wet thud. Like, yeah, we all know this. Like, no one's on the other side of this issue while watching it. And Bodies, Bodies, Bodies was like a much better version of that kind of story about like people who are completely self-absorbed, but filter that self-absorption through the language of psychology and therapy and leftism in a way that was very funny to me. On that front, uh, Rachel Sennett is so fucking funny as like the podcaster who's completely oblivious to like everyone else to the point of like being a caricature of like Gen Z and millennial self-obsession. I, I thought every line that she delivered in that movie was like, this is a movie star. And I look forward to everything she does from here on yeah. out. I, have you seen Shiva? Baby? Yeah, that was good. Baby? Okay, because I have heard good things about that one. And after watching this, I feel like I do want to see her in something else because I completely agree. Amanda Stenberg continues to be amazing. I love her in everything that she is in. Uh, Lee Pace is great in this. Oh, yeah. Very funny. Total himbo. And I had a friend that I tried to invite to watch it with me, and he was like, I cannot stand to look at Pete Davidson for that long. Um, if you know anything about this movie, it is uh, a whodunit, like a, like a murder mystery, like what we're going to talk about later. And Pete Davidson is the first person to die. So if that is a drawback for you, as it was for my friend, and is honestly the reason I didn't see it last year, um, he is not in it for too long. He's well used. Yes. You know, it, the character he is playing is so within his wheelhouse. Exactly. It is his wheelhouse. So I'll just say that at the, and, and leave it at that because I don't want to risk uh, saying anything more. Um, I saw <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp. But I did coverage of that, and it's on the website now. I will say, I really did not think that I was going to see it. I thought I was going to go down to the Austin Film Society Cinema and check in and you know buy a ticket for something else. 
but man, something happened in that car wash. I, I, I decided to go and, and, and go to the car wash before I, I went to the movies. And in that like psychedelic bubblegum scented lather, it really convinced <laughs> me that I needed to go see Ant-Man and the Wasp. It was in 3D, um, which was muddy and messy, which it always is. And Allie, you and I have talked about this, how that 3D effect doesn't really work for us. And it still doesn't. It just makes everything blurry in the background for me. Exactly. I don't know what the me point too. Is. I, well, like I said, I think uh, we actually cannot see it. Yeah. Thing. So I, I will chalk up maybe some of the distracting muddiness of the movie to that, but not all of it. It was definitely just like not a good movie, which was a real bummer for me because, like I wrote about in in my review, that ended up being like my two hundredth review. And the fact that Ant-Man was my first one, it felt like kind of like a, you know, a circle, like a nice circle to have. And it would have been really nice if I could have enjoyed it, but I, I couldn't. <laughs> the The best thing about it was the blueberry slushy that I had. Well, blue raspberry. Does Jonathan Majors come out unembarrassed? I, I want him to have a good year because he's in so many things. I want people to enjoy his, him as a screen presence because he's a good actor. Yes, he does anchor the movie a lot. It's not his fault. OK, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, that he is doing a very great, serious role in a very tonally inconsistent movie in like a sub franchise that is usually comedic. Like the Ant Man and the Wasp movies, they're fun heist movies. They're, that's what they're supposed to be with little things. And we have talked about this before, but that's my favorite shit. I just love little people, little tiny people in great big worlds. I want to see like the borrower family, you know, with them having like a watch face on the wall as a clock. You know, I want I want to see kids eating a giant oatmeal cream pie in their yard and honey, I shrunk the kids. That's my shit. Put that in my veins. Like, I love it. That's my favorite thing. And that is not anything that's happening in this movie. Speaking of which, rest in peace to Bert I. Gordon, who died last week and like pretty much was the king of that genre. Like um, the special effect of like a giant spider being blown up to be bigger than the humans. Or he did that movie Attack of the Puppet People where people shrink down and like the set is bigger than them. Uh, Empire of the Ants. Empire of uh, the Ants. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and Village of the Giants with Bo Bridges. Yeah. I, that one's a great one, too. A legend in that genre, if not the legend of that genre. We shall not see his like again. He is the right. Harryhausen of little people. Exactly. <laughs> oh, R.I.P. Bert. And then I, I was surprised that there was a write-up of this because I went to look it up because I, I wanted to write about it myself and how disappointed I was. And then I found your review of it, Brandon, and you had already written about it and how disappointing it was, although I would have given, uh, given it a half star more. I saw Lust in the Dust. I want to like that movie. Yeah, I want to like it too. It's almost good. It has... I laughed at it more than you did. So for our listeners, Lust in the Dust is a 1985 Paul Bartel movie, which we love Paul Bartel around here. We love eating Raul. Mm. This is a movie that was written by someone else and then offered to um, our favorite pencil mustachio director, John Waters. And he didn't want to direct it because he didn't write it. So they tried to like kind of halfway do it by getting Paul Bartel and casting Divine. It's so dull to look at. It's such an ugly movie. It's of its era in a really disappointing way. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, I'm not here to carry water for Westerns. In general, I hate them. 
But there was like a period of like the 60s and 70s where they looked gorgeous. And if you go and see a Western now, they generally look gorgeous too. If it's like a, you know, a big budget mainstream studio making it, they really know how to like shoot those vistas. Whereas this, even though it was like a DVD version of the theatrical release, it looked as grody as if it were on a VHS team, like a VHS Western. It's ugly. It's mean, but not always funny mean. Sometimes it's just mean, mean. Divine is great in it, as always. I really enjoy like her musical number. Divine plays a woman who is trying to find this missing gold in this western town, and she ends up being briefly accompanied to the town by Tab Hunter doing like a quiet man Clint Eastwood impression. Uh, and then it turns out that on her ass, there's a tattoo and also on um, Lainey Kazan. Yes, I was going to be the I couldn't remember her name. And I was about to be like the mom from my big fat Greek wedding. Um, <laughs> you know, she also has the other half of a map tattooed on her ass. And then there's like it just takes so long for all of the relevant characters to gather where the gold is. And the climax is really belabored. And I don't know, it, it didn't leave me feeling like I had had a good time, even though I laughed some. And, you know, this is the ultimate, like, you are in a hotel with no air conditioning and only two channels and this is on. And therefore, it's the only option you have movie. There's no other reason to watch this. And the thing was, I only became aware of it because of these old Roger and Ebert Roger and Ebert, Siskel and Ebert uploads that I've been watching on YouTube, and they both hated it, but they often both hate things that I really enjoy. And I just thought, maybe they didn't get it, and I would, but no, it's just not a great movie. Do not recommend. I um, almost bought the nice new Vinegar Syndrome cleaned up Blu-ray of it, and every time they have a sale, I almost buy it, even though I, I know I don't like the movie. Hoping that maybe there's like some extra features on there, you know, in praise of Divine or something that I can hold on to. Because um, it is an interesting part of her career, like historically, when she was like trying yeah. to break out of like only being a John Waters figure. And she almost got there really close to her death because she was about to start filming a recurring role in Married with Children, like right before she died. So I don't know. It's a bummer that it's not better than it is, especially since I love Paul Bartel as well. I know. I really thought with him being attached, it would still make it worth it. And, you know, I guess not everybody can can, you know, get the gold ring every time. But it was a it was a very disappointing movie, to say the least. I did dress as divine in that movie um, in 2018 for our crew, Divine Walking Crew, which I just shared to the group chat. This picture is very cute. Yeah, it's I really, really like this. I, I wasn't going to comment on it first because, you know, since <laughs> this is a podcast and the people listening can't hear it, it's cute. I love this. Yeah. Go to Swamp Flicks uh, and click on the Crew Divine tab at the top and see if you can find it. They'll find it. It's a treasure. Yeah. Oh, my God. Searching for gold. You've got to, we've got to tattoo the half a QR code on each of our ass cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, finally, I saw one movie twice over this past weekend. And I'm very excited to talk about it. I was telling everyone before we recorded that I'm already over 1,500 words into my review, and I'm about halfway done. I saw Scream 6, and it was 
fucking great. But I don't know that you necessarily felt the same way, Brandon, because I know you saw it. So I would like to give you the floor first so you can oh, no. tell me your feelings. Oh, Well, this is a continuation of the new kids from Scream 5. This is like their story with a couple recurring characters returning from earlier parts of the series. Most notably, Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, is like a pretty major figure in the movie. I didn't find the kids in 5 were very charismatic or like worth caring about. So like following them again for this movie, I didn't really change my mind. I guess I got to know them better this time. But that's making it sound like I did not like the movie, which is untrue. I, I, I had a good time going to the theater, watching a slasher on opening weekend where the crowds are very enthused. Um, I think Scream, the first one in four, I really like. The rest of the sequels I find more interesting as like a check-in on where horror is um, as an industry. Mm-hmm. This one tries to do that by talking about franchises, which I didn't find very convincing. I would agree. Yeah, like that kind of just felt like a throwaway. Like we have to have a monologue where we like call out the tropes the way that Jamie Kennedy would have done in the past. But that felt like more obligatory than like what the movie was actually about. What I'm usually looking for in these movies is the stab meta commentary where there's a lot of like on screen parody of the quote unquote true events of the murders in Woodsboro sort of regurgitated as mainstream horror. So we watch like on screen parodies of what slashers look like through the ages as these movies get older and older. Um, and there's like no on screen stab content in this movie except for like a fan film that plays towards the end. And instead, yeah. They moved that to talking about how no one really watches horror movies anymore. And like all of that kind of fandom and like fan theories and conspiracy theories about ongoing horror narratives have all moved to like true crime. So like all of the commentary about horror tropes are actually about like the real killings in these like real kids lives and people are treating it like content on Reddit um, yes. and really fucking with their like, mental health and like daily public life by like treating them like they're fictional characters. And I kind of wish they had pushed the franchise talk to the side and like really drilled down on the true crime aspect. Cause I feel like that's where it's heart really was. Yeah. But overall, you know, lots of funny jokes. I don't want to say who the villain was obviously, cause it's also a whodunit, but um, they get really hammy in the killer speech at the end in a way that I thought was really fun. And yes. the violence I think is true to another consistent thing in the series, which is deep, brutal, upsetting misogyny yes. from the killer. And this movie does not shy away from that in a way that I found really shocking and had me gasping. And the audience was hooting and hollering and celebratory laughter at the kills in a way that really upset me and like not really laughing at the jokes as much as they were laughing at like someone's head getting bashed in or someone getting stabbed in the face. So I don't know. I have like a swirl of reactions to this movie where like overall I'm glad I went. I didn't love it, but you know, I thought it was a very interesting addition to this ongoing series that I enjoy more as like an accumulative series more than I enjoy each individual movie. Okay. I'm glad they keep going. Yeah, and it, it's been a while. It was a while and between Scream 4 and the last one. Like there was a really long period of time. And the, you know, it had been a long period of time before too. You and I are in agreement where I think that Scream 4 is the next best one after the original. It might even be as good as the first one, um, which is not something that you can normally say about like the fourth film in a franchise, that it's 
as good or better than like the originating uh, IP. Lots of stab content in that one. Yeah, there is a lot of stab content in that one. And then I guess it's been long enough since the last one that we can talk about who the killers were in Scream 5. In that one, it has this really great line that I think about all the time where it's like... uh, Richie, who is played by Jack Quaid and is the one of the two killers in Scream 5, he is pretending not to know anything about the Stab movies, and he's just like the boyfriend of one of the main characters who goes back with her to her hometown whenever she has to deal with like a family emergency, and then pretends to be just learning really about the Stab movies as they go along. And turns out that he is like a toxic fan who is what we were just it's like what we were just talking about what you were just saying brandon is that like he's he even has this line where he's like how can fandom be toxic it's about love and i think about that all the time because we are living in the age of toxic fandom and so it was like scream came down from the mountain last winter scream 5 did to be like oh we've got a new concept and a new conceit yeah like they don't just put these movies out all the time whenever they just were like we're going to go to the well as much as we can that's how we ended up with scream 3 but then they decided to take a break and then during the era of remakes they did scream 4 which is again brilliant wonderful i love it and then took another big break and then decided to go ahead and make another one of these movies last year when they could specifically address the culture that we're living in now with regards to how people treat movies and and then moving forward with that into this one, how they treat the people who are involved in real life tragedies. Now, I did not think that that was going to be your complaint. What I imagined you would were going to say that you didn't like about it was that it didn't necessarily take advantage of the New York setting as much as it could have. Well, I would have loved a, a novelty sequel that really took advantage of that urban setting the way that Jason T- Takes Manhattan does, which I think is a fantastic slasher sequel. Um, despite its reputation, I think it's a very fun, goofy movie. And I think people kind of just get hung up on the title more than they actually like engage with what's in it otherwise. But I guess there's enough in here that I was satisfied by that, and I just kind of took the movie for what it was instead of like wishing it would be more what I wanted. Okay, well, that's great. I mean, I try to do that every time I watch a movie. <laughs> I'm not a Star Wars fan who needed to be called up by Scream How can 5. fandom be toxic, Brandon? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, a, I'm a reasonable person, I think. Um, <laughs> I will say, I do think one of the best scenes in the movie, and like besides the franchise talk, like one of the great like check-ins on where horror is as an industry right now does come from that New York setting on the subway train, which was heavily featured in the ads, that subway sequence where there's a bunch of people wearing the ghost face mask and they can't tell which one's the killer. And what's interesting about that within checking in on modern horror, like a state of the union address on like where horror is right now, was that with Ghostface, we have a bunch of canonized killers like Pinhead and Jason and Freddy are like all on that subway train because it's Halloween and people are just in costume. But because it's 2023, there's a bunch of modern costumes mixed in there. And to me, it was like conscious exaltation of certain titles to say these are now part of the canon. So you have um, the Balloon Boy from It Chapter One. Uh, There's a Babadook mixed in there. Uh, The May Queen from Midsummer is in there. 
And yes. I, I think most notably the family, the tethered from us, uh, there's a group yes. costume on that subway. And I think as far as just like capturing the zeitgeist of where horror is right now, that's a pretty solid collection of like, these are the titles that matter on the current l- landscape. The first time I saw it, one of the ones I didn't notice is the when they're at the frat party at the beginning, Freddie, who tries to take Tara upstairs, is dressed as one of the kids from Funny Games. That did not uh, occur to me at all. I thought he was just dressed like a douchey frat bro. Yeah, but no, it, it wasn't. I, I didn't catch it the first time. But and also one of the really fun things that when they're coming down the stairs in the subway station, um, there's a woman dressed as Samara Weaving's character from uh, Ready or Not. Which is That's very fun funny because she's also in this movie. And I I know that it's because the people who made this also made Ready or Not. But, you know, it also is still fun because they're like, yeah, I also think that she is like a great addition to this canon of Final Girls. Like, it was great. And it also, like, the people who were in your movie theater cheering at the violence they don't realize that they are the ones who would be buying those ghost face masks during the middle of like a crime spree with ghost face masks. And what's funny is that that's been part of the narrative this whole time. Like that was in the first film too. In the cold open of Scream 2 as well. Yes, people were not taking it seriously. It's always been about like how people can really just overlook violence if it gives them something fun to think about and uh, translating that like you said to this sort of like internet sleuthing element it was was one of the brightest things that they could have done i think that that really worked and they even pay it some lip service early on where um you know stab the movies within the films are based on gail's book and her follow-up books to it whereas they specifically mentioned that she could not sell the most recent Woodsboro murder book, the film adaptation for it, because all that people want to watch now are prestige limited edition series. And I thought that that was very funny. I really wish they had leaned into that and never said the word franchise. Like if this movie was about true crime, I think it would be one of my favorite sequels. I will say straight up that I don't disagree with you that I, I do think that uh, the franchise discussion did feel very obligatory to me as well but it was also like boom and it was done and then they went straight back to actually handling the like narrative yeah and this is the longest one and it did not feel like the longest one to me like i love scream 2 which is the second longest um and it's only shorter than this one by like two minutes but that is a movie that every time i watch it i do kind of forget until i'm watching it i'm like oh this one is very long Like, it has a lot going on in it, but it's a little overstuffed. Whereas this one, it did not feel its length to me. I think if I cared more about the characters, then I would be there with you. Because there's a lot of scenes of, like, heart-to-hearts and, like, we've been through a lot. Uh, They they brand themselves the core four because they survived the the killing spree of the first film. And I I just didn't really feel much about them. So I was feeling the length sometimes when there was, like, no slashing, no meta commentary, no temperature checks on where horror is right now. And it was literally just about these two sisters getting by in the big city. That's when I was kind of like tapping my foot a little bit like, okay, I don't really have anything to think about in this scene. I'm ready to move on. I'll disagree with you there because I did feel that way in the previous one in a way that I did not feel in Scream 4. Because Scream 4 
definitely felt like it had a brand new bunch of characters that you could find something interesting about. Most notably Kirby, who returns for this one. But yeah. even like Emma Roberts' character and, you know, the the Culkin that's in that one, they all had like very distinct personalities that were fun and interesting. Whereas I think the personalities of the characters introduced in five are not as strong or as fun. But I did love the sister stuff in this one. I actually really, I, I did not think that Melissa Barrera was a very good actress after Scream 5. There were a lot of complaints online about her acting. And I, even though I did not participate in that complaining, I did agree with it where I was like, she felt very stiff and wooden and I just wasn't really into it. And then in this one, I don't know what happened. I found her very compelling. There was a big step up in her performance between five and six, and it's only been a year. So I don't know what they could have done. It's not like she could have taken, they didn't send her to Juilliard for eight semesters, you know, in between these movies. But she was, I found her so compelling this time, where last time I really didn't. I think they need to drill further down into her like psychological break in the next one if they're going to continue with the same story of kids because she is like the core of where this could go because otherwise there isn't much of like a momentum to the story. Yeah. So I, I am also interested in her arc more so than the other kids, but uh, I feel like there's more to be done to like really make that work. Since yeah. you evoked Emma Roberts, though, I do have to cite uh, that the best kill scene in this movie like the most tense one was lifted from my favorite emma roberts movie nerve nerve because <laughs> uh, there's was that scene the, the ladder yeah yeah there's a scene in okay. nerve where uh she gets dared to like cross across to, uh, two new york city apartments on a ladder um and that's also like a pretty major set piece in this one but it, it worked in both movies and i'm sure nerve was not the first movie to ever do that in the first place but I, I, I was just thinking a lot about Emma Roberts already because of Scream 4, and then that happened. I was like, okay, well, I guess we're just going to repeat that scare and just assume people don't remember that it's been done in recent memory. Fair enough. And that was the uh, laugh in the theater that bothered me the most, too. That death was pretty brutal. Oh, it was brutal. I also, I think every death scene in this one was very compelling. I thought so, too. That bodega scene is really scary. Like scary in a way that you know a lot of horror movies don't even think to do anymore i was fearful and again i don't want to give too much away but we there there were moments in this where i thought we lost some people that i was like i am so upset <laughs> like i don't want to see this happen my buddy that i was with afterwards he was like when you know i'm not going to say what it is for spoilers but he was like when that happened you gasped and put your hand to your chest like you were clutching your pearls i was like i didn't i didn't want it to happen like i know that narratively it would have made sense anyway i don't want to talk around and around and around about something that we're not going to actually talk on yet and i also don't want to cannibalize my own review too much more but i could talk about this for like another hour but i i, I won't i'll just ask you brandon other than scream six what have you been watching unless you have any final scream six thoughts you'd like to share well, I mean, there's really not much else out in theaters right now of interest. So any kind of like hemming and hawing you just heard from me, like doesn't really matter. Like it's a pretty solid sequel to a very interesting series that continues to prove its worth. Even in the goofiest uh, entry in the third one, I still think there's w stuff worth seeing in that movie. I agree. Yeah, like definitely go see it. 
I, I think it's, if nothing else, an improvement over five. And I, I would have said the same thing about that if I had seen it when it came out. It's like, it's a good movie. You know, it's worth watching. Yeah. In defense of three, there are things in it that are that are ingenious and inspired. Yeah. I also will say it's a it's not a good movie. It's a bad movie. But <laughs> there are things in it that are very clever. Parker Posey is always a delight. Them having Sydney go to the set of her childhood bedroom inspired inspired so even when it's at its worst there's still something fun um i just fucking love scream man i just fucking love it (laughs) that was a james and britney's favorite of the sequels when we did that episode last year to my shock told me that and i cannot it boggles my mind i still don't get it either (laughs) it's like it's like hydrogen peroxide in my brain just (laughs) make any goddamn sense but all right I do worry that uh, my shock at some of the things people were laughing at is just a sign of me getting older and overly sensitive because uh, I also went to see Cocaine Bear in the theater and I had the same reaction at that screening where like people were laughing at violence that I assume even in a movie that unserious was supposed to make you gasp like, oh, I can't believe it Mm. went that hard. And then it goes back to jokes, you know, but people were like laughing in a celebratory way, even louder at the brutality and the kills than they were at like the capital J jokes. And Mm. at the cocaine bear screening, I had a very similar like, what the fuck is wrong with you sociopaths feeling? Um, So I assume some of that is me more so than it is my fellow human being. I mean, maybe a little because I laughed at a lot of uh, there was one particular thing that happened to poor character actress Margot Martindale where I like cringed. But other than that, I found the, the violence like, like comedically violent. So, but maybe that just means I'm sick in my brain. I don't know. The Margot Martindale thing is actually one of the things that came to mind while I was talking just now. Like, yeah, what happens to her? People were like, woo, woo, woo. Oh no. Oh. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I haven't no. seen it, but how dare they do that to Margot Martindale? Also, part of that probably is that um, I didn't laugh once the entire screening of Cocaine Bear. I was just sitting there in stone silence. Um, I felt like I was at a Deadpool movie where I was just like, what is funny to you people? This is horrible. (laughs) I really did not enjoy that experience at all. I'm sorry that I convinced you so hard (laughs) that you had such a bad time. Uh, At least half of it was desperation and boredom in the fact that there's nothing else out of interest right now. So, um... Don't feel too bad. <laughs> I really had nothing go- else going on in my life. Well, I'm, I said I was sorry, but I had already forgiven myself. So oh, there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> but after Cocaine Bear, I was like hungry for a like genuinely over the top animal attack movie that wasn't so like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Isn't this so funny? And I went home and watched Day of the Animals from 1977. It is from the director of Grizzly. I think his name's William Girdler. Uh, he also did that movie Abby, the sort of like black exploitation riff on The Exorcist. But um, Grizzly is kind of like Jaws, but with a bear. It's like the ultimate like bear exploitation animal attack movie. <laughs> and Day of the Animals has some good bear attack footage in it as well. It has pretty much the exact same plot as Cocaine Bear. Like it's about this group of hikers who are loosely connected traveling up this mountain and then suddenly an animal goes supernaturally crazy and picks them off one by one. And they're more like archetypes than they are, you know, characters with an actual arc, you know, like they're just kind of these broad caricatures. 
instead of cocaine being dumped out of an airplane and the animals going wild because of that, uh, there's a hole in the ozone layer that uh, <laughs> the, the rays from the sun drive all the mountain animals mad. That was topical. <laughs> uh, yeah, the movie opens with a warning that if we do nothing to curb climate change, uh, then this will happen. <laughs> so watch out. Uh, but there's a wider range of animals here that go crazy, like wolves, dogs, snakes, owls, buzzards. Oh, my. What a smorgasbord. And a bear. And the bear attacks Leslie Nielsen in particular. Which I, I think is like a good indicator of like where this movie's heart is because like a decade later, Leslie Nielsen would have been a joke because of the um, Naked Gun movies and like his Zazz films. And instead, this is when he's still like a vaguely handsome character actor and he plays like a fucking asshole, like macho corporate executive brute who tries to like alpha male the rest of the hikers on the mountain to do his bidding. Um, and it turns out that the hole in the ozone layer is also driving his animal instincts wild. Oh, fun. And like he, he is equally hammy as he would have been a decade later, but he's taking the role seriously. And it's like, I don't know, watching Cocaine Bear, I was like, I wish this were more genuine and like treating the conceit as straightforward entertainment and not something that has to like self mock. Uh, and uh, Day of the Animals scratched that itch for me. I, I thought it was a very fun, like 70s era, like cheese ball premise. That was taken seriously to the point where, like, it was both goofy but also surprisingly vicious. I was a little freaked out by it because there's a lot of, like, nature footage of the animals just sort of in the habitat. And then all of a sudden, they sort of, like, emerge from that nature footage, that, like, stock footage to, like, attack people in the flesh. And um, there's, like, a visceral, like, tactile violence to it that... um I don't know, when you see nature footage inserted like that, it always feels so separate from the actors that, like, it just feels, like, artificial. So, like, for the animals to, like, jump out of that and actually make physical contact with the stunt performers and the actors was, like, surprising every single time. Was it, like, roar in that way? Yes. A lot of, like, wrestling with, like, real beasts that, like, probably could and did hurt people on set, you know? Uh, So maybe not the most ethically made film, but... um. I thought a very entertaining one. And and if you have any interest in cocaine bear or like disinterest in it, I think it's like an interesting comparison point because it it really does have a similar plot structure, but just goes about it in a more sincere way that I think makes it more ridiculous. It reminded me a lot of Larry Cohen's movies. Like it could have been a Larry Cohen film if Michael Moriarty was in it, Uh, which I I guess I mean as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) I also went to the theater this weekend to see, the Agnes Varda film Cleo from five to seven, which is a first time watch for me. This is a staple of the French new wave. I, I always see her stuff on the big screen cause French film fest plays her stuff like pretty much every year. So I'm, I'm like almost reluctant to watch Agnes Varda films I'm so jealous. in my free time. Cause it's like, I could, if I just wait, I'll probably see them on the big screen at some point. Yeah. So this is like, I think her like most famous movie. Would you say that Allie? Like, yeah, this is definitely her most famous. Yeah, so, like, when I was really getting into her a few years ago, this should have been, like, top of my list. I should watch this first. But I'm, like, really glad I held out because I got to see it, like, big and loud. I think this movie is very well known, so I don't want to go too much into, like, plot, even though there really isn't one. I I just want to call it, like, a version of Breathless where I didn't fucking hate the main character's guts. So (laughs) it's just, like, a more pleasant version of that. 
the Cleopatra of the title uh, is a pop singer. She sings that like Yee Yee style pop music from like 60s Paris. And she is awaiting test results from her doctor about whether or not she has cancer. And basically for those two hours, she's just very anxious and like travels around the city, going to different cafes and like art galleries and public parks. I'm um, just awaiting this news. Um, she's a bit of a hypochondriac and a bit superstitious. And just the anxiety of like not knowing the state of her health drags her along the city where she has like these little mini adventures with the people of Paris. It's visually stunning. Like the thing that really jumped out at me is just like every single scene, almost every frame has mirrors or reflective window panes. So you're always looking at like two or three different angles of an image. Um, and you know, Varda's like really cutting up the frame into like different vantage points. And just as I was thinking about how inventive and playful she was being with like the reflection of an image, then she's uh, the main character's in a cafe and she overhears these two guys talking about cubism um, and like, yeah. uh, you know, that visual art style, which very specifically does that on purpose. Um, so, you know, it's all very on, it's very, all, all very on the table. It's not like, a movie that's really going to like have a lot of subtext for you to think about. It's just like upfront, immediate handheld cinema, the way that like the best of the French new wave was. And, uh, yeah, I loved it. It's a very wonderful film. And I, I think better than some of the Truffaut and Godard stuff that, uh, was eating up the conversation yeah. that it could have been taking up some of that space. Yeah, whenever, whenever I have, friends that are like oh i don't know i can't do the french new wave i'm like well have you watched any agnes varda They're like yeah no not yet i don't even know her i'm like how i would even go as far as to say it's like after that wave crested she continued to be more exciting yeah. than most of her contemporaries like huh? i don't have much patience for the godard like image book goodbye to language like montages of just like nonsense scraps of multimedia with like vague narration that doesn't really mean anything much more into her digital age self diaries and like mm -hmm. playing with new camera technology as it comes out. And like, again, being very upfront about what her movies are about and like actually exploring the subject in the text where she's directly communicating with the audience in a very immediate way. Yeah. I really enjoy the fact that she's one of those filmmakers that is just as good as a documentarian. Yeah. Just great. My favorite from her is um, The Gleaners and I, which is, you know, early 2000s documentary of her playing mm. with a camcorder for the first time. Yeah. And she raps about trash in French. Uh, <laughs> and the first time I saw that was on the big screen at French Film Festival. So um, the festival just concluded in New Orleans. But I would just say, uh, you know, every spring, um, usually after Mardi Gras, before French Quarter Festival, it's in that slot somewhere. Keep a lookout. They do a few repertory screenings and they play a lot of um, new releases as well. But you can usually catch a Varda or a Demi um, mixed in there. And uh, it's very much worth going to the Britannia to check it out. Talk about a power couple. Oh, yeah. I'm going to throw in one more quick one uh, because we have discussed this topic before. But um, after reluctantly watching and enjoying the rehearsal, I also uh, ran through all of Nathan for You. Um, in the past couple months. I didn't know you had watched the rehearsal. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> it's very good. The things that bothered me about the early episodes of Nathan for You I had seen, I actually thought were sort of dealt with directly in the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like aftercare. 
where he like doesn't just pop into someone's life for a quick gag and then like use them for a couple jokes and then you know just fucks off what I, what I liked about the rehearsal is that he like really digs down into the psychology of these people who obviously want to be on television but are not mentally well yeah. and really like picks at his own participation in their lives and like yeah. what it means to like untangle once he does that. Mm-hmm. And I just today watched the finale to Nathan for you, um, which was more of a prank show and more like had individual scenes that were more like candid camera style. Yeah, just using people for these like one-off jokes without really worrying about their well-being. Um, but yeah, ha- had a lot of the layered artifice that makes the rehearsal so fun. Where like you know, um, to make a gas coupon work, he like makes it a rebate for like free gas. But uh, for you to um, get the rebate, you have to go to this mountaintop to put it in a box. But once you get up on the mountain, oh, yes. you have to answer a series of riddles to find out where the rebate yes. box is. Like his way of like layering the, art- the artifice is really fun on both shows. And Finding Francis was this uh, 90 minute conclusion to Nathan for you. Uh, I, I'm treating it like a TV movie. Yeah, and it kind of is. It aired that way. I mean, it has the like fade to black commercial breaks, but it does play like a continuous narrative, especially if you right. watch it on HBO Max. Like, there's no commercials between the scenes. Um, in that, there is a Bill Gates impersonator he used for a few recurring gags on Nathan for You. That uh, he just gets involved in the guy's life. Like, he just kind of keeps showing up at the office. Even though he's not being hired for episodes, he's just like around. And Nathan kind of becomes interested in how lonely this old man is, who I guess vaguely sort of looks like Bill Gates, but puts no effort into his craft. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a very good impersonator. No. (laughs) Not even a little bit. He has no material like locked and loaded. Like he has no like jokes or like. It's also kind of like, what a strange person to try and impersonate. Kind of genius though. Like. Do you know what Bill Gates looks like if you close your eyes and try to picture him? Yeah, I don't know what Bill Gates looks yeah. or sounds like if you were to just like ask me. Like, oh, no. I could describe him to a sketch artist and you might get this guy. Yeah. But that yeah. doesn't mean that they actually look that much alike. <laughs> right, right. And it turns out that uh, Nathan was a little scammed by the guy who said that he was a professional Bill Gates impersonator, but just wanted to be on TV and lied. Which I think uh, accounts for a lot of people who show up in these types mm-hmm. on these types of reality shows. Yeah, and he can't tell if this guy's lying about why he's so lonely. Um, the Francis of the title is a long lost love from high school that he wants to reconnect with, and uh, keeps saying like I should have married her. And Nathan goes on this sort of like impromptu road trip with the Bill Gates impersonator to find Francis uh, to reunite them. And the more he digs into this guy's. Um, personality the more he's like oh he could be lying about this too he could be like a bad person and i could be putting francis in danger by like reintroducing this like old love um who may be a stalker or an abuser back into her life you know and yeah it just felt like aftercare for the show in the way that the rehearsal did especially with that child actor who nathan pretends to be his dad for a while and the kid can't dislodge from that psychologically yeah this is kind of doing the same thing. It's like, you know, after the gag is over, what lingers? I'm going to dig into that. And it kind of culminates in before Nathan is comfortable introducing uh, Bill Gates to Francis. He's like, I want to do a rehearsal of what this meeting's going to be like. And he hires an actor to play Francis and makes the Bill Gates guy like 
run through it as a dry run rehearsal a bunch of times until he does something that is like approaching healthy human behavior and like puts Nathan at ease that like, <laughs> you know, the therapy is working and he can like actually interact with this person in a safe way, um, which was basically like the first episode of the rehearsal um, as like a dry run as the conclusion of his previous show. I thought it was very, I thought it was very like interesting. I, I, there were episodes of Nathan for you that I thought were absolutely brilliant. There were episodes that pissed me off. Um, and some yeah. of them were like the same episode. Yeah. 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 <laughs> My favorite will always be ghost realtor. It, nothing was ever better than that. So I, 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 that one I just watch sometimes when I need a little serotonin boost. Same. You were strangled by a ghost in Switzerland. I was fond of his playing the media episodes a lot. So I really liked the dumb Starbucks one where you like did a fake Banksy art yeah. installation. Um, and I really liked his manufacturing the greatest talk show anecdote ever episode where like that one's also very good. Yeah. He tells a really dumb story on Jimmy Kimmel and then has to make sure that it's real before it happens. And that's when you start to get like really layer on the artifice of like trying to achieve an, an authentic life experience through like you know running through the motions like as long as i pretended that i did this thing it technically happened to me there was even a little aftercare with the ghost realtor as well because yeah. he brings her back for this like recap episode of the top of season four um and she is like fully committed to his business plan for her where she still markets herself as the ghost realtor and is trying to sell a reality show with that conceit except that her medium has passed away. Aww. So she's kind of auditioning new people to like replace him. So yeah, I think something really did change with that fourth season where you like kind of came back around to like revisit these people's lives and like start to think about what it means to do what he does for a living. <laughs> and like, I don't know, figure out how to do it. If not more ethically, then at least more intellectually and thoroughly. Yeah. Just some maturing for sure. I'm just glad that you enjoyed that more than Cocaine Bear, and I feel less guilty <laughs> about recommending Cocaine Bear now that I know that you took mine and Allie's recommendation to check out these Nathan Fielder programs uh, to heart and really enjoyed yourself. Glad. forgot to be humble. You've tricked and fooled your readers for years. You've tortured us all with surprise endings that made no sense. You've introduced characters in the last five pages that were never in the book before. You've withheld clues and information that made it impossible for us to guess who did it. But now the tables are turned. Millions of angry mystery readers are now getting their revenge. For this week's episode, I had us watch 1976's Murder by Death, a murder mystery spoof featuring all kinds of people in the cast. You've got Peter Falk, you've got Maggie Smith, you've got your James Cromwell. Oh, who we know. We, we know the, as the farmer from Babe. Yeah, or as Zephyr Cochran, the inventor of Warp Drive, yeah. who appeared in 1996's Star Trek First Contact. <laughs> we can't hear the bell, but we assume it has rung. Uh, I rang it, yeah. Right. I rang it in the first segment, too, um, not knowing what you were talking about, but assuming it was Star Trek related. It was. Okay. <laughs> if you hear a name like Tuvok or... Uh, to Paul. That's Star Trek, just straight up. Uh, anyway... 
Yes, quite a cast. They're all playing spoofs of different famous detectives. And I guess Peter Volk is kind of doing double duty as both a Columbo and like a hard-boiled like noir detective, which is uh, pretty great. Did you say Peter Sellers? For the most part. No, I said Peter Falk, right? Okay, my bad. Oh, but I I, yeah, I forgot to mention Peter Sellers. Probably for the We're best. gonna be mentioning yeah. some We're Peter Sellers. Be, oh, there's gonna be a lot of talk. Uh yeah, I was just about to say. The unfortunate drawback to the movie is its very seventies sense of humor. Where, you know, at the time I'm sure they thought oh, we're going to be hilarious and uh, spoof all of these things that were really racist, but we're also going to be really racist while doing it, or problematic in other ways. So, you know, I don't know how it landed for y'all with that, especially Boomer, because I know that I picked this one, because I'm like, he's a murder mystery person. Um, Basically, the premise is Truman Capote, or Lionel Twain, invites all these famous detectives to this house for dinner and a murder. And from there, it is kind of like cross between the house on Haunted Hill and Clue. And I guess chronologically also kind of meets in the middle between those two. And it just gets more and more ridiculous as the movie goes on. Yeah, Boomer, it's again, it's, you were the one that I was like, murder mysteries. Has he seen it? Um... Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, Allie. Oh, it's okay. I I really I I was in, I enjoyed a lot of the wordplay, but this Peter Sellers mm-hmm. thing it was too much for me. And yeah. I do like it is clear to me. Uh, just for our listeners, he is doing a version of Charlie Chan, who mm-hmm. was a film like an early black and white film detective. Uh, who is like in a series of movies about him solving murders where Charlie Chan was uh, an Asian character in played by a white actor in Yellowface, And Peter Sellers is doing that where he is uh, they're mocking the yellow face element of it in some ways, yeah. but they're also the way that they're doing it is just as it could just as easily be mockable if this were an Asian actor. Mm-hmm. And I, for a very long time, was not a defender, but was an admirer of the movie Cloud Atlas from 2014. And I still think that in many ways it is a beautiful movie. But there's a film theorist that I follow online named Walter Chow. Who like every few months he really goes on a, a Cloud Atlas rant. And like decentering myself in that and listening to how he feels about it, I understand how that movie is like, especially for you know something that's less than ten years old, incredibly racist. Um, as an as a method of adapting the novel on which it's based, not to get too far off on a Cloud Atlas tangent, where it's basically a movie about how the same souls are reborn over and over again across time and eventually re-encounter each other in different ways. And there's a segment of the film that's set in late 21st century Korea where all of the like living beings of that time are Korean, 
but they've got the same actors playing the same souls over time. So you've got like, you know, Ugh. it's not the same thing to put like Bai Ling in like white face in like uh, the era of chattel slavery as it is to put, you know, an actor in yellow face in the 22nd century. Like it's not uh, neither is good, but one yeah. is, um, you know, it works on the page. Because on the page, you don't have to worry about that. You can be like, oh, this person's soul is the same as this person and this person before them. Yeah. And also they're Korean now. If Kate Blanchett can play a really good Bob Dylan, you can get actors to act like each other. I mean, face off. <laughs> like, it's not hard to cast people that are the right race, especially in this day and age. It feels weird and wrong. I think that movie was probably made at the last exact moment they could have even gone to production with that idea. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. And while this movie is very funny and clever in a lot of ways, you know, what Walter Chow has really turned my mind around on with Cloud Atlas is like, that's not my... It, not that I ever thought it was my place to be like, oh, it's fine. But like, uh, really, really not, um, not a good idea. And here... Again, whenever Lionel Twain is mocking um, this, like, serial numbers filed off Charlie Chan for his diction, what he's making fun of is the way that, like, white people have written Asian character, written and performed Asian characters' dialogue in the past, but it just, it, it got under my skin real uh real bad in a way that made it very difficult to enjoy this as much as i wanted to because otherwise it's very much exactly my kind of movie yeah watching it again i was like oh yeah that's bad 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 it is extremely distracting you're right especially because i feel like the movie thinks that the spoof is funnier than it is to the point where they're showing it enough that it is just outright racist again I kind of like that the other characters get very irritated by him yes. towards the end where every time he goes into one of his like Confucius preloaded sayings that Charlie Chan would have done while solving mysteries in the, you know, old black and white films, everyone cuts him off before he gets to the punchline is like, shut up. We're like actually trying to like solve something here. And you're like, you know, shtick is not helpful or funny. We need you to like go to the side, Peter Sellers. We have actual work to do. Talk about Lionel Twain thing. When I first watched this movie, I thought Herman Capote's performance was a little bit awkward. And this time I'm just like, yes, I love this. I love Truman Capote in this movie. <laughs> and I know, like, once again, it, it feels grating and wrong to be like, where's your prepositions? But there's so much to his performance that's just fantastic. And you're just like, ugh, what a character. I think he's pretty essential to what. I love about this movie and this was like a high school favorite for me when I would have been less critical of the Peter Sellers stuff. Not that I ever thought it was like right or good, yeah. but like I would have waved it off to the side more in the era when like, I don't know, South Park was the defining comedic force of our pop culture landscape. Like yep. that sort of like ironic racism, you know, sort of flew more in the two thousands when I was watching this regularly. Hmm. Um, but Truman Capote is just so undeniably gay. Yes. In such a like classic back of the bar bitchy kind of way. I know. Yeah. I know. I love it. <laughs> I think it like accentuates other things in the movie that could be read as 
homophobic to make them also seem like openly gay. I'm imagining like a gay audience in the 70s watching this and having the fucking time of their lives. Exactly. And I think he's pretty essential to like making it okay to laugh at like the Peter Sellers gay bar gag where like this hard boiled detective that he's playing also dresses in drag and like very much in a misogynistic way hates his uh, female partner slash mistress. Yeah. 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 The movie just has like a classic bitchy gay sensibility that I think is very funny. It does. That's the Neil Simon there. Yeah. Um, I love this film. But I don't feel good saying that out loud. Yeah, same, same. That's kind of how I feel. Is like there's so much here that like puts a bad taste in your mouth. But at the same time, I'm just like, I really like this movie. If we were recording this conversation 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is like the better, smarter version of Clue. And in a Ooh. lot of ways, I still agree with that. Um, but in a lot of ways, um, I also you know, can't ignore the fact that like every third joke makes me cringe instead of laugh. So I, I don't know. Say, I, I love Clue as well. So Clue's fine. Ooh. Tim Curry's very funny in that movie and like runs over time. Otherwise it's like a very cozy Saturday afternoon movie that doesn't like try very hard to like entertain you. And this one is dense with jokes in a Zazz yeah. Looney Tunes level rapid fire pace. We're like, even if every third joke makes me go, ooh, they should not have said that. Or, ooh, that's not funny. Um, that's actually offensive. There's still two jokes that happen before I can even complete that thought that make me scream with laughter in a way that, like, basically maybe two lines in Clue make me laugh that hard. Yeah. Wow. I feel that. But wow. I, I think t- I just love you? Tim Curry so much. I think Tim Curry's lines in Clue are just so good that he saves a whole lot of that movie. Um, I think Tim Curry is as funny as people remember Clue being on the whole. And, like, the fact that, like, the Madeline Kahn line flames on the side of my face that people remember being, like, so funny in that movie only happens in one of the three alternate endings and even isn't even in, like, the main body of the movie, depending on which version you watch. Madeline Kahn is the other one that I'm like, I do. Yeah, but she's used pretty sparingly in it and doesn't actually land as many zingers as, say, like, Maggie Smith does here. I foundationally, fundamentally disagree about what everyone else is saying about Clue's quality level. Clue makes me laugh every moment in the way that you're talking about this movie. Where with this one, I was, I, you know, I am a man who loves wordplay. But, like, it's such a long, drawn-out sequence where everybody is arriving and there's all this, like... Uh, you know, the butler's name is James Sir Bensonmum, like, you know, where it takes forever. Whereas it's not just Tim Curry and it's not just Madeline Kahn and Clue. You've also got, you know, Martin Mull and you've got Christopher Lloyd and you've got Leslie Ann Warren and you've got all of these characters and they're all doing such bits. Every gay that I know loves Clue if they've seen I'm, it. I'm sorry. You're steamrolling past the best part of the James Sir Bensimum thing, which is it is labored and it is annoying. And then Maggie Smith says, oh, please, Dickie, stop. I don't want to hear any more of this. And like, that's the punchline. And yes, that's like no, that the is gay funny, humor. Yes. And it's fucking hilarious. Really like, yeah. It makes me scream with laughter. Also, later, she is just on fire. Like Maggie Smith is so fucking funny in this movie. Really but like, did. she asks like, her husband, what would somebody want to do with a naked dead body? Yes, and he oh like whispers God. in her ear and she goes, Oh, Dickie, that's tacky. That's, tacky. that's <laughs> really tacky. Like that. She's like into it. Yeah, um, yes. And then you're the right. Jessica okay. Marbles character, like two seconds later says something that's like no one in the room has any interest in whatsoever. And she goes, 
I like her. I really like her. She is so funny and like such a classic, like every maneuver she makes, like makes me howl in this movie to the point where like, I almost willingly forget that Peter Sellers is also there, you know, ruining the vibe every 10 seconds. I also right. kind of really enjoy the Aro spoof. Ooh, I don't know about that. <laughs> From all of the like famous fictional detectives, I think Poirot is one of the ones that like gets on my nerves after a certain amount of time like i'll watch the Poirot show and it can be comfy and cozy and then after a certain while i was like i have to turn this off i have to turn on jessica fletcher we need murder she wrote right now can i say that i think the agatha christie characters are the least funny parts of this but i also don't read agatha christie or engage with adaptations of it so like (laughs) i didn't find the Poirot or the marbles character like that interesting but the thin man oh yeah nora charles stand-ins and the um humphrey bogart hard-boiled detective character that peter falk were playing i think have some of the funniest lines in like any comedy in this movie so like i I think that's just coming from like a personal like spoofing what i actually watch that i'm gonna find the jokes funny yeah it's not very clever to be like oh poirot eats a lot like that's and he's french no he's belgian Oh, he does. Yeah, he does correct. He's a he's a <laughs> oh, that's no, that's that's actually something that happens to Poirot all, all the, the time, time. All the time, yeah. Is that people always think that he's French because he oh, speaks French joke in this movie? Are the jokes would the jokes be any different in this if like that was widely known knowledge? Like all the jokes are basically like French stereotype stuff, and that he likes to eat a lot because he's stubby. I don't find that character funny at all. I mean, it's pretty clear that just from like me and Ali's reaction, that if you knew more about Poirot, that you would have enjoyed this more, I think. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I'm with Ali that like Poirot is not something I could, I could watch, could and have and will again watch eight hours of Murder, She Wrote just like straight. Yes. Yes. And I love Miss Marple. I could watch many episodes of Miss Marple because she's basically Jessica Fletcher. I could not stand more than like one or two episodes of the Poirot show at a time if I were subjected to it. And even though I really enjoyed uh, like Murder on the Orient Express, I don't think that I would enjoy watching that twice in a row or even back to back with Death on the Nile. So we are in agreement that Poirot is a detective who wears out his welcome very quickly. Are we in agreement that Peter Falk is fucking hilarious in yes. this movie? <laughs> yes, we Peter are. Falk can do no wrong. I mean, we're he's so funny. He's so I funny. I love Eileen Brennan in this. I mean, she's oh yeah, she's just as funny in Clue, but she's very funny in this too. I, I like uh, when Truman Capote declares that he's the number one world detective. Peter Falk says, um, "Well, you look like number two to me." In his like yes. Bogart voice. And then Eileen yeah. Brennan um, has to explain to Maggie Smith what that Ooh, means. It's gross. She's like, I'll tell you later. It's disgusting. <laughs> the way the way the two of them like chew on their lines like really oh, has me howling. So good. Yeah. Peter Falk, anytime he's in anything, I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And this especially just because once again, it's like by this point in time, he was extremely well known for Columbo, but then he's not playing Columbo, but he still kind of is. Right. Delivering his lines in this very, like, hard-boiled, noir way, but then, like, got so many of the Columbo mannerisms that I'm just, like... In the same uniform, too. Yeah, the same uniform. Similar car, same uniform. (laughs) 
I I will say, you know, if we're going to talk about like things that, you know, were enjoyed and, and as, as someone who has no nostalgia for this, I didn't enjoy it as much as you two did. That opening credit sequence is astounding. Yeah. The eyes and the movement and the names. It really it really sets it up as sort of feeling like something a little bit like masterpiece theater, but also like with a little bit of a wink and and a little bit of a Looney Tunes sensibility with the moving of the eyes. It's illustrated by Charles Adams, who did the Adams Family. The Adams so Family, a, a little yeah. sense of macabre, yeah. um, like classic newspaper, like New Yorker style illustration to it, um, mm-hmm. in a pop up book presentation. Really beautiful opening credits. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh man, Alec Guinness must have gone straight from this to the desert to be Obi Wan. He did. He was uh, he, did, he was filming yeah. this and looking at the script for Star oh, Wars. Oh really? I had to explain to yeah. Neil Simon what this was. Oh my gosh. It's so <laughs> funny because. That's funny. I feel like outside of Star Wars, the only thing I see Alec Guinness in is comedies. And it's just like very interesting that in Star Wars, he plays this very like old wise like character, <laughs> you know, in this. Yeah. And then in my favorite like musical Christmas Carol adaptation, he's like a ghost miming, like floating around. It'd be so funny that I'm like, how did he get to be <laughs> Obi-Wan? This feels like one of the murdered relatives he would have played in the um, like Ealing comedies, like in like Kind Hearts and Coronets. Yeah, it's a pretty basic gag. He's a blind butler, so like he can't do his job particularly well. But it was such like a classic like Mr. Magoo kind of shtick that like even that should have offended me more than it did. And maybe if I saw this for the first time this week instead of like twenty years ago, I would be offended by that as well. But uh, he's doing it like basic like vaudeville routines, uh, and I got a few laughs out of it. If if I'm gonna like bring back the conversation to Clue briefly, uh, one thing I appreciate about this movie and that film is like they kind of riff on the interchangeability of the endings. Yes, but I think this one is, is more true. fun in the way it does it, where like Clue separates the endings out. So like mm-hmm. it was a gimmick at the time that you didn't know which ending you were gonna get at the theater depending yeah. on what reel that th- was shipped to that location. Um, but in this case, it includes the same level of like preposterous multiple endings that are like self-contradictory, but they just happen in the same timeline. <laughs> and the last 20 minutes are just convoluted nonsense, yes. like just mush. And then Truman Capote gives this like giant speech, which I believe is just Neil Simon griping about murder mysteries as a genre, where he's like, you detectives in your dime store novels always like withhold information, give these preposterous twists, introduce characters to the last second. There's just like no way to solve it. It doesn't even matter who did it. You're just like stringing us along and I feel cheated as an audience. And I, I just really like the way that the preposterous, like self-contradictory reveals like really pile up in those five minutes. I was going to say, I love the Scooby-Doo mask reveals as well. Very funny. Like just suddenly we got a Scooby-Doo moment. Like it's just such a hat tip to so many different mystery shows. Not necessarily book-wise, but television, movie-wise. And Capote's speech is very funny. Like, his delivery of it is, like, he sounds like an impetuous child. It's like a little temper tantrum that he's throwing. I can't imagine what this was like on set. Just all of these ridiculous people, like Peter Falk and Truman Capote. I would love to be a fly on that wall, just, like, watching these people interact in real life. That did me. Like, conceptually... This could not have been made more for me, but just like in the, in the execution of it, 
like I said, seeing it for the first time in the year of our Lord, 2023, I just, it was, as much as I was enjoying certain parts of it, every time, you know, Peter Sellers would come back on screen and they would be like, oh, how long have you had that dress? And it's just like, oh, everything about this makes me feel kind of sick. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> to, yeah. To, uh, Either of us to disagree give, with you on that at all. <laughs> right. No, and I understand that. And I, I hope our, our listeners would as well. I don't think any of us are in disagreement about that. We but. are not into yellow face as a podcast. Yeah. Um, anti that. Yeah. Uh, It is unfortunate that as critics of a form of art that has existed for a long time, um, and on a cosmic scale, like actually a very short time, but long enough that you can track the way that people's um, values have changed, that unfortunately we must sometimes discuss art that does not share those values in the present. Um, I don't think anybody would fault us for that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying this movie. I'm not making like a moral Uh, judgment. Also, it's really funny to go from movie with a mostly Asian cast winning best picture to watching yourselves in yellow face is the other thing. I'm like, oh, wow. My, how times have changed. But as far as things that I did enjoy, you know, I, every time that there was like an eye behind a painting, or like an eye, or like the dog sticking its tongue out of the painting, <laughs> or the, the, the eye in the uh, eye hole of the moose. I found all of that very funny. I did enjoy other introductions. Um, I, everything that James Cromwell did, I found hilarious. Yes. Him, like, falling down the stairs when lightning struck because his hip only yes. bothers him when the weather is bad. James Cromwell great. really steals a lot of the show, or not, Yeah. Even, like... Did, like top of the cast i love his mesh lingerie yes. that he wears yeah it's kind of hot yeah i like it like he's kind of serving in this yeah it's great it's a little bit of the classic white boy conundrum though where it's like is he hot or is he just tall because he's a very tall man <laughs> okay <laughs> but he's he's really cool and gets arrested for protesting for like leftist causes all yeah. the time and just generally seems like a great human so i'm just like it's okay we can we can call him very attractive in this He's also very funny on Secession, so he's still doing good comedic work in the current times as well. I think with comedies, like, unless you agree with the premise of something, it's going to be hard to laugh, you know? (laughs) So, like, the premise of the Peter Sellers joke is just so deeply, hideously racist that, like, it's going to be hard to find any jokes near that land because you're already, like mad at it for even assuming that's a premise you that everyone's agreeing with you know but that said there are a few lines that peter sellers has in this that i even found funny but it was more about the wordplay than it was about his character uh like when his his son says you know i don't hear nothing what do you hear and he says double negative and dog that got a laugh out of me but that is like in the introduction of his character where you're still reeling from the fact that they went full on Asian caricature with this white actor. Uh, so like if you're seeing that for the first time, no joke is funny enough that you're going to laugh at yeah. it. You know, like it just really is like a, a really sour note to start on. And the movie doesn't have much room to improve from there. What really should have happened and something they played with was that the reveal that he was actually in yellow face in character. Well, they, they joke about that early on. Cause um, someone mishears him and says white wang. Uh, and it, it cuts to Peter oh, Sellers. Yes. So like it's saying like his character is a white guy in yellow face. Like it does acknowledge that in the wordplay. But uh, what I was going to say is they, they cut out 
um, another detective out of the storyline. There was supposed to be uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson stand in as well. Uh, and instead they, they had that as a few deleted scenes and like cut some storylines out. And it's like, if Sherlock Holmes and Watson were in this, instead of Charlie Chan's adopted son, that would have pretty much fixed most of the problems with the movie. Yeah. You know what we have to do? Are you saying we have to recut Murder by Death? With- yeah, we need like a fan edit. <laughs> I was thinking that we just take the best jokes and put them on our TikTok and do funny dances while uh, in front of them on a green screen. Then- while in the upper right corner, Subway Surfers place. <laughs> and then every time Peter Sellers is on the screen, we just do like angry face, like thumbs down. Oh, we just don't even include that. We We're not putting that, that online. Okay. We're just excerpting the best jokes and putting them on the Swamp Flicks TikTok that we don't have. Uh, our TikTok, everybody don't check us out on our non-existent <laughs> TikTok. Ten years ago would have been the Star Wars fan edit, uh, but now it's the TikTok dance. Yeah, and ten years ago, the Star Wars fan edit was still a mistake. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. It's like I want to stick to what I originally thought before I put it in the DVD player, which is like... I think it's the better version of Clue, but I also want to add the caveat now having rewatched it that it's also a much much worse version of Clue. Yes. It's like both things simultaneously. Sometimes like mid joke it switches from one to the other. Yeah. <laughs> I feel super conflicted maybe, about it. Maybe Ryan Johnson can save us and come up with his version of this. Get everybody who's recently played famous TV detectives together. Redo it. Oh my god, Mariska Hargitay. Yes. Ellie Davis? Is that who's Miss Fisher? I love Miss Fisher. <laughs> By the way, y'all. Wow, you just outed me as like a fake television mystery fan because I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Essie Davis. That's who it is. The mom from the Bobby Duke. She plays like this flapper, solves crimes, huh. and she's got like friends who are communi- communists and like also, fortunately, a friend who's a cop. I don't know. It's very good. I don't know why I don't watch more shows like that because my favorite version of TV is episodic self-contained stories with like a beginning middle and an end and not like you have to watch 20 hours of last of us to figure out like what the arc of the season is like i'd rather like wrap it up in 40 minutes while i eat my dinner and then i can put on a movie afterwards than like binge a 20-hour story uh so i should be watching murder mysteries because there are neat little self-contained like writing exercises yeah and i have been enjoying poker face a lot um, I, I think it's like really exceptional television. I feel like we are all secretly 80. That we all just <laughs> want murder mysteries. It's like nice little self-contained things. We're so gassed at these movie violences. All of these shows dragging on. I'm not going to live forever. I need it to hide up. Give us Father Dowling mysteries or give us <laughs> Yes. I will say I was at the Britannia the other day. I was waiting for Cleo 5 to 7 to start. Uh, and these older women behind me were talking about the Oscar nominees that they had seen. And they were, like, offended by the very brief, I think, tasteful and purposeful violence in um, Banshees of Inisherin and said that they hated the movie because of it. And I will say I'm not that old yet. <laughs> I'm not incensed by violence. I just find people's celebratory laughter and applause at it um, concerning. Oh, yes. <laughs> Especially when it's not supposed to be funny. Well, I think really what we need to do is start writing letters to uh, directors and movie theaters so they make it more clear. This isn't funny. This isn't a game. No. I think what I need to do personally is just not see 
horror movies on opening weekends because those audiences are always kind of terrible. (laughs) I I had actually had that reaction in my, I want to say early twenties when Rob Zombie's Halloween came out and the opening hour of that movie, I really liked like when Michael Myers is still a child and I thought it was like really like scary and like upsetting. Mm -hmm. And part of my reaction to it was people laughing and cheering on really vicious, upsetting violence. Yeah. Um, So I guess there's always been that like, uptight Roger Ebert part of me that like is disgusted by my fellow theater goer in some ways, Yeah, but it, it always hits me with like the first weekend crowd for some reason. I don't, this is, I don't usually at all go see movies first weekend, but especially don't see like horror movies basically in theaters ever. Like Scooby Rink was like an exception. Cause I was like, well, I gotta go see a weird thing, but yeah, usually I'm like, I'm too much of a baby. I'm going to be super embarrassing in the theater, yelping at things. No one will want me there. But yeah, you're just making me glad that I don't do that. Because I know I just get laughed at. They'd be like, oh, what a weenie. She shouted. <laughs> she shouted during the scary scene. I, I, I don't know. I think we are, to a certain extent, turning old. But that's okay. If being old means loving murder mysteries and wanting plots tied up in an episode. I'm fine with it. Well, you know, I kind of like everything all over the spectrum. I don't mind having to binge 20 episodes of something. I'm I'm not that I'm not against it. But I will say my mother always thought it was the funniest thing that at nine years old, my favorite television program was Diagnosis Murder. It was made by and for elderly shut-ins. I was like nine years old, and I'd be like, I'm Diagnosis Murder's coming on. We've got to oh, get home. My and my God. mother found that hilarious because it's like, wow. You know, looking back on it, what a weird child I was and what a weird man I am. And I'm okay. We're all fine. We're all fine. <laughs> I would say uh, I wish I could go back in time and show you this movie in those more formative years. But uh, probably better for your well-being that you don't have affection for it. Because I don't feel good about liking Murder by Death very much. <laughs> I don't think either of us feel good about it. But we- no. <laughs> we do laugh at it. Murder for the money, yeah, murder.